On behalf of the people and clergy of St. Luke's Church, I wish you Merry Christmas. The great days and seasons of the church year are the times, in fact, every occasion of public worship in liturgical churches, but certainly during the great days and seasons are opportunities to remind ourselves of God's will and purpose for us, how we respond to the divine initiative begun in us, and what sense are we to make out of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. But the main thing is, is that you and I are part of God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. I use that word cosmos not because I'm a fan of Carl Sagan's particularly. That dates me. But cosmos is a Greek word. It's a great word because it means bringing order out of chaos. That's one of the definitions. It means an ordered way of understanding reality. And another definition of cosmos is ornament. So I always think Christmas time is a time when we can think about how each one of us in some way adorns the cosmos is part of God's processes of bringing to bear his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And so we're grateful to that, for that on Christmas. Anglican Christians have been accused of something uh, that is sometimes referred to as the Anglican heresy. And that is uh, what some people believe an overweening emphasis on the humanity of Jesus and on the incarnation, God becoming a human being. But for us, it is very central. You heard in the epistle to the Hebrews that Jesus bears God's very imprint. And in the Greek text, it is the word that is used in the ancient world for a person, a minter, striking the metal to make the coin, pressing the impression in to the metal. And so the gospel that we read this morning, the gospel according to St. John, uh, John is the gospel par excellence for showing us the idea that for the Johannine community, in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And more to the point, when we have seen him and heard him, we have not been viewing some tableau that has been played out in front of us, but we have been provided tools that we can use, the ways that you and I can become the transparencies of God's grace and love in the world. And so we carry on now these principles that we have heard. I'm going to preach a little bit about the Johannine Prologue, which is the fancy way of describing the introduction to John's Gospel that I read to you. And then I'm going to speak, as I always do every year, about the four Christmas affirmations, four things that I think the Christmas season brings to us for our own reflection and for uh, the ways and means that we can be God's people in the world. I used to worry a whole lot years ago about repeating myself too much, and now I just don't care. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to repeat yourself, so that's the way it works. The, um, 
Johannine prologue is an example, by the way, of the fact that the, the feast of Christmas is a theological feast. It's saying some things about who Jesus is, who God is, who we are in relation to all that. All that story, all those stories, part of the grand narrative. And I mentioned last Sunday thinking about theology and all of the ins and outs and all of this sort of thing. Um, Bishop N.T. Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham in the north of England for seven years, and he just uh, resigned from that post and is now teaching again at the University of St. Andrew in Scotland. Uh, I was watching YouTube last week, and on YouTube there was a lecture that Bishop Wright was giving on being human. And he talked about being in London in a traffic jam. If any of you have ever been to London in a traffic jam, you know exactly what he means. He was at a conference or going to a conference, and he was stuck in this traffic jam. And the cab driver turned around and looked at him and saw him in his clerical outfit. And he said, oh, are you a vicar? And he said, well, no, I, I'm a bishop, actually. He said, in the, in the Church of England. And he said, yes, as a matter of fact, that's true. He said, well, in the Church of England now, uh, you all are having a certain amount of trouble about the potential idea of women bishops in England. And he said, yes, we are having a bit of trouble with, with all of that. We're moving uh, forward on this. And he said... Uh, the cab driver said, well, here's what I think. <laughs> if God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all the rest is rock and roll, isn't it? <laughs> now, for some, that may be a reductio ab ad absurdum, but the fact is that he may have a point. But it is nonetheless important to think about what do we mean about God becoming a human being and how do we understand this. The writer of John's gospel uh, wrote in the first 18 verses of that gospel some of the most profound theology in the Christian church. And he describes Jesus as the Logos. The logos uh, in Greek means, can mean word. Jesus is the word. But when I was preparing my sermon this week, I looked at uh, logos can mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, principle, standard. The organizing principle by which we understand how God orders the cosmos, our part in this process, and the role that Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, is the ways and the means to have a deeper and fuller understanding of that process. So here are the four Christmas affirmations. The first affirmation is that Christmas is uh, the affirmation of the goodness of our humanity. 
In the biblical witness in Genesis, it said that God made the world, he made human beings, and he called it good. He was satisfied with his work. And in one sense, we could read the whole of the Hebrew Bible and even the New Testament as the process whereby God remains steadfast and faithful to us in the midst of our fickleness. In the midst of our own uh, march towards self-discovery. And God remains faithful during this process. So we affirm the goodness of our humanity. The second affirmation is that we affirm that we can achieve the highest of our human potential. I don't mean that from the standpoint of the human potential movement. You know, uh, the whole issue of self-discovery is at the center and heart of our cultural life. I, 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 me, me, me. The way we understand spirituality is connected to self-discovery. You know why Gnosticism has become so interesting to people? It's because it's all about self-discovery. It's not about the mighty works of Jesus Christ and our role in this and how you and I in some way make a difference in the world in big and small ways. It has to do with some species of navel-gazing. Do I mean you ought not to be engaged in some process of self-discovery? Of course not. The unexamined life is a life not worth living, what was said by somebody famous, a writer on the spiritual life. But we also have to understand that it's far bigger than that. You know? The spiritual life is the whole of life. Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. And so if you don't believe you have a spiritual life or you don't want to have a spiritual life, get up every morning and ask yourself the question, what spirits am I in? That is the spiritual life. The spiritual life is life. So all this preaching and teaching that you hear about that has to do with how you and I learn to become the best human beings that we can be. And in that process, we live into the affirmation that you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. We bear the very imprint of God's image. So we affirm that we can achieve the highest of our human potential. When we understand that, Father Thomas Keating, the great writer on the spiritual life, one of them in the West, says the humdrum duties and events of daily life become sacramental, shot through with eternal implications. Jesus introduced the entire human family to the entire human family, the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. Jesus has joined the human family and has not just subjected himself to the consequences of the flesh, but also introduced the principle of redemption from all the pre-rational programs for happiness that center around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. 
And for all of us, the interior work we do on our emotional, spiritual, and mental states has something to do with how we keep all those things or try to keep them in balance. And the good news of the gospel is that God is present to you in this process always to achieve the highest of your human potential. The third affirmation is that you and I, as Christian people, can be joyful and people of hope. And joy is not some giddy hilarity that means we always look at the world in a Pollyanna-ish, rose-colored glass way. I used to always think of joy like Snoopy in the Peanuts cartoon, you know, kind of hilarity. You know, a lot of people have paid a big price in their life for not learning how to distinguish between happiness and euphoria. So what we mean about being joyful has to do with uh, the, the uncertainties and conundrums of life coming into surer and clearer focus as we live lives of intention. And believe that it is important not just to engage in the processes of self-discovery, but to learn what is required in order to build character. Habits of being and relating that are healthful and life-giving, not only for ourselves, but for other people. And so a joyful person is engaged in those processes and is hopeful that there will be a positive outcome. Hope, honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm the way in which you engage life on a daily basis with some species of confidence. And finally, the fourth affirmation is that Christian people are people of peace. If there's anybody in this world that should be peacemakers, it's us. My own view, by the way, is, is that is there, if there's anybody in this world who ought to be idealistic about things and wish for a society where it is easier for people to be good, it is Christian people. Even though it may seem uh, awfully idealistic most of the time. Christmas is a time we hear a lot about peace on earth, goodwill towards everyone, and so on. We hear that every year. When the Savior spoke about peace, he didn't use the word peace. He used the Hebrew word shalom, which is a very powerful concept. It's a word that is freighted with many meanings, just like logos. Here are, are a few of them. Completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness. Fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. I think during the holiday season, the absence of agitation or discord would be a good thing to labor to produce, don't you? Particularly in some cases, if you're headed for the annual knockdown and drag out known as the family Christmas dinner. <laughs> right? The non-anxious presence is what we're shooting for here. And again, being a peacemaker isn't some sort of Pollyanna-ish uh, way of living. It's the way in which we understand that 
peacefulness, God's shalom is present to everyone. So for the next 12 days, remember Christmas is 12 days long. It doesn't end now. I can remember as a kid going over to people's houses and if you were there and they opened up all the presents, once all the presents got opened up, you'd hear someone say, well, that's Christmas for this year. Right? It's all done now. Whereupon my grandfather would say, don't throw any wrapping in the fireplace. You might burn up some money in one of those envelopes. Right? So we knew what our priorities were about all that. And where Christmas was located. But in the great tradition with a capital T, Christmas is 12 days long. So we have some time to think about the implications of the incarnation and our role in it. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So remember for the next 12 days at least that you are an ambassador for Christ and that God is making his appeal through you.